in mill 347 for trap one. How do you read me? Over. Welcome to the first Trap One Book Club of 2018. My co-host this week is Jason Miller, and we'll be talking about James Goss's adaptation of Douglas Adams' Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Thanks for having me on again. Pleasure to be here. Uh, great to speak to you. So we're going to talk Doctor Who and the Cricket Men today. So I guess it's like Doctor Who and the Silurians that it's actually got Doctor Who and the, in the title, this one, hasn't it? Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, it seems like um, Douglas Adams kind of had this idea around the time that he was writing The Pirate Planet, and the production team liked it so much, they suggested it could be a movie. Um, judging by the, the notes that James Goss has written in the, the back of the book, this actually progressed quite far. We actually came quite close to seeing this. Tom Baker was on board, they had the BBC approval, they'd taken a loan out to finance it, and then it just somehow didn't quite happen. Reading the book, I got the impression that it was almost unfilmable because every chapter is a different location. This would have required, especially in the pre-digital era, this would have required an extraordinary budget. Yeah, that's true. It would have been quite um, quite adventurous, wouldn't it? I was kind of imagining if it had been a movie, it would be a little bit like um, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits or something like that. Yes. With a similar budget, though. Yeah. So it might not have looked as great on screen as it does in print. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Actually, if you think of it, Terry Gilliam would have been a great director for uh, for a Doctor Who movie. I'd like to. Oh, absolutely, that, uh, absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, um, before we kind of get started on the book, um, we've got a reading in this episode uh, by Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who. Eric, the hi, Real Eric. <laughs> hi, Eric. Um, I actually um, was in Prague a couple of weeks ago, um, and we met up and had a meal with Eric. So it was really great to meet him. And he uh, is part of the Who Against Guns campaign that um, probably most listeners will have seen on, on kind of social media, where a lot of the, particularly the American podcasters and then some kind of Doctor Who professionals, got like Paul Cornell, um, Philip Hinchcliffe, Stephen Moffat, I think Andrew Smith, um, are doing a podcast commentary on the war games where they've got different people on different episodes, which you can access with a contribution to uh, an anti-gun charity campaign i believe they're up to four separate commentary tracks for episode 10 of the war games alone that'll be a good day to listen to one after the other definitely yeah it's, it's gonna be a lot of content isn't it it's um and and just great people as well that they've got involved there it does seem from obviously not living in america but from the outside like the that things are changing finally um, what we see on the, the kind of BBC news and things here that uh, I think um, was it Florida that, that brought in um, a new age limit for yeah. the purchase. Florida of is one of those states with a millionaire governor of questionable ethics, and he has turned the state, depending on who you ask, into a wholly owned subsidiary of the National Rifle Association. So the fact that this governor actually signed a gun control bill, as weak and as watered down as it is. And as much as it allocates money for arming the teachers, even though they won't allocate money for school supplies, it's not a great bill. But the fact that they actually got a bill passed is extraordinary in this day and age. In fact, the National Rifle Association filed a suit against the state of Florida the same day the governor signed the bill into law. <laughs> right. 
So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And their theory is that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because it bans assault rifle ownership for anybody under the age of 21. So their theory is you can't distinguish between an 18 to 21 year old and somebody, you know, 40 and older. Right. So they're saying that the bill is unconstitutional as written, and they're trying to get it stricken. And if they win, that would mean that any gun control bill going forward would be unconstitutional. Kind of. Say from a legal point of view, which is where I make a living. Right. And I'm kind of hoping that the governor of Florida wins this one. Yeah, definitely. So it's uh, it's obviously a test case of, of some significance. Then um, I guess the other states will be kind of looking on in interest to see see what the outcome is. Yes. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, anything that can be be done to help in any small way in the meantime, um, and it's great to see everyone come together like this. I think the, the Who Against Guns campaign, it's really taken off. I think it, um, the last time I saw, they raised $12,000 so far. Yeah, so I think they were only at 3500 and then Stephen Moffat said, if you can double that, I'll come on board. And they doubled it at probably in less than 24 hours. Yeah. So I know a couple of days ago, Graham and Joy had Stephen Moffat on the line to record his episode, his version of the episode 10 commentary. So it's come together in a remarkable hurry. Fantastic. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's out um, any day, possibly by the time this episode comes out, actually. I think the, um, they'll be released, they'll release the right. first podcast. Uh, do you know if they're, they're coming out weekly? I wasn't sure about that. I bet I... Don't know. According to one of the Twitter threads that I saw last night, and we are recording this on the 11th of March, it's actually due out tomorrow, the 12th of March, but I don't know if that's all the commentaries at once or just episode one. Yeah. It's a, it's a great thing to get behind. If any listeners aren't aware of it, haven't seen it or anything, um, it's it's going to be very easy to find if you're on any social media or um, search for it in Google, Two Against Guns. Just an incredible lineup of talent. You have, like you said, several folks from the series, several podcasters, uh, several folks right here in New York City where I'm from. So I know a lot of the people involved. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing what they have to say. The War Games is absolutely one of my favorite stories, and this just makes it even better. Yeah, mine too. It's um, it's brilliant, isn't it? And uh, obviously they needed a really long one to, to get their teeth into. Um, it's a, It's a great choice, I think. So, Doctor and the Cricket Man. Yeah, so um, as we're saying, it was uh, James Goss was visiting the Douglas Adams Archive um, at St. John's College at Cambridge, which was his, his college when he went to Cambridge, um, when he was researching the Pirate Planet. Um, and one of the archivists there gave him a box for Doctor and the Cricket Man, um, which he was surprised to find there was a lot more detail than had previously. Um, been uh, you know believed to exist for it um, because it had been planned as a movie. Douglas Adams actually worked on it on and off for four years, so he'd written quite a lot of um, dialogue and it, kind of a lot of detail of individual breakdown of scenes and things. Um, whereas I think previously people had just thought it had been completely rehashed for the third Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book, Life, the Universe, and Everything, which I've read when I was a teenager but can't remember a lot about. Um, have you read that one, Jason? Yeah, I was embarrassingly deep into Doctor Who and the Cricket Men before I realized that it essentially was life, the universe, and everything. With the exception of the locations, the basic plot is almost identical. The opening at the cricket match is identical. But the only thing that I can remember about life, the universe, and everything now 
probably 30 plus years after I've read it, is that it opened at a cricket match, which itself was taken from the Doctor Who episode, The Daleks Master Plan in the 1960s, where the TARDIS lands at a cricket match for about three or four minutes and then takes off. Douglas Adams remembered that and worked it into Life, the Universe, and Everything, but before Life, the Universe, and Everything, he wanted to work it into his Doctor Who script, which we are now finding out the long way around. Yeah. Ah, uh, right. I, I had a, an omnibus when I was a teenager that had the first four Hitchhiker's Guidebooks in it. Um, but I, I, yeah, really just couldn't remember any of this. I remember the kind of what constitutes the first radio series of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy really well. Um, and after that, it all just seemed to have faded from my memory somewhat. Um, but what I think what was interesting is the as, as the um, what it says in James Goss's notes in this book is as time went on, originally it was going to be Sarah Jane Smith was the companion. Then, obviously, as she probably left the series, they just referred to the companion as Jane, um, suggesting they were <laughs> going to create a new one, a new companion just for the movie. Um, so this was the kind of dilemma that Goss had when he came to write it, was whether to use Sarah Jane Smith or not. Um, the, the stumbling block being that they go to Gallifrey in the story, um, which would obviously then contradict uh, the Hand of Fear, where the Doctor has to drop Sarah Jane off before he's allowed to visit Gallifrey because he can't take any non-Gallifreyans there. But what's really charming is at the back of the book, there are two chapters that he wrote uh, to sort of test it out, where it is Sarah Jane Smith, but it's Sarah Jane Smith post-school reunion with the, with the fourth Doctor. Um, and it's, it's really nice... Um, kind of thing to read it's the same basic setup as the as you get in the actual book um but really quite kind of charming seeing the doctor meet the older sarah jane like that that's a really interesting road not taken but i think the season 17 doctor romana canine i think that pairing works so well james goss manages to work it so organically yeah that it's hard to imagine anybody else but Bilal Ward Romana in this story because he writes for them so seamlessly, don't you think? Absolutely. And and the other Douglas Adams, this is the fourth of the, the Douglas Adams books that have been adapted in, in the last few years. They've all had the same lineup, um, albeit the Pirate Planet had the first Romana. Um, so it, it kind of fits with the series as well, I think. And with James Goss having written for them so successfully with the novelization of City of Death, yeah. uh, I think it's certainly natural for him to turn to Romana again. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, the book opens, um, as you say, at the cricket match. Well, but kind of before that, there's a, a, a an opening monologue, isn't there, which is very much in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You can hear the kind of Peter Jones voice of the book. Um, it's almost a dead-on pastiche. Yeah. And again, had I read Life, the Universe, and Everything first... All of that is taken from the background and life, the universe, and everything. So this is just Douglas Adams imported almost wholesale. But he writes it so well, you can believe that it's a lost Douglas Adams monologue that he just pasted into the book. Yeah. So successfully did he write it in the Douglas Adams style. Yeah, he's um, he, he does do that very well, James Goss. Uh, I think very he's well. honed it over the three books as well. Um. So we, we learn in the opening monologue about the Elovians, who are uh, an insanely aggressive race, who um, want to build an ultimate weapon 
so that they can basically have the ability to wipe out all life in the universe. Uh, so they achieved this with a very Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of plan of building a giant supercomputer <laughs> which <laughs> yes. is the size of a moon which orbits their planet um, and which says he's going to take years to to kind of design and perfect this. Uh, so it's very much you immediately start thinking about sort of deep thought, don't you, and uh, the uh, the computers from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And Doctor Who is the computer from the Armageddon Factor, which was going to destroy both planets. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's uh, and that's just as Douglas Adams was kind of coming on board as well, wasn't it? He'd written the Pirate Planet and, and took over as script editor the the series after that. Yeah, so he definitely would have been in the conversation for that. Yeah, but what happens is in the in the in the prologue, the Elovians activate the weapon. But they find that the computer has deliberately built a floor in, um, and it doesn't. It doesn't activate. It's uh, it's a total dud. So they hack tower is the computer they built, and they blow that up with missiles. They destroy the the moon where it's uh, where it's based. And it's quite like a Doctor Who pre credit scene, isn't it? Where um, the, the the kind of the Doctor and companion aren't involved. It's just kind of giving you a bit of a background to uh, to this part of the universe and the the idea of this super weapon. Although the prologue is so wide-ranging and covers such a wide range of history that you could not fit this into four minutes on television in the new series. No, that's true. It's got that Douglas Adams style of, of um, yeah, bringing in a lot of different, um, uh, yeah, a lot of different histories and there's footnotes and all sorts, isn't there? So that, uh, yeah, it's very kind of wittily done. It's not... Oh, yes, the footnotes. The footnotes were a very clever touch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so then when the story proper gets started, uh, as you say, Doctor and Romana are at Lord's Cricket Ground um, during the Ashes. Um, so England are playing Australia. I don't, do you know much about cricket? I am a very big baseball fan, so I know the history of baseball in America backwards and forwards from 1869 through today. Cricket I know virtually nothing about. I'm the same, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a sports fan really at all. I never played cricket. I, I went to a very basic school where you had three terms in the academic year and we played football for one of them, rugby for one of them, and we did cross-country running for the other. But in the, the kind of the sports kind of part of the building, there was a load of pristine looking cricket gear that was just there all year round, never used. And I always thought, that might have been my sport if uh, <laughs> if only we'd ever played it. Um, you had gotten there during the correct term. Yeah, I, d- I don't know why they had it and never never played it. I guess the uh, the PE teachers that we had weren't keen on it. But uh, yeah, it just seemed like there'd be a lot of standing around. It seemed like it'd be more kind of my pace. Um, but uh, unfortunately, never got the opportunity. So yeah, I know very little, little about cricket as well. But it's not really uh, an impediment to enjoying the book, I don't think. No, I was able to uh, reverse engineer most of it from what I know about baseball and from having watched Black Orchid, which has uh, a cricket match taking up most of part one. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so the, the Doctor and Romana are pretty horrified, aren't they, that, that the, the humans are playing a cricket match? They think it's um, kind of absolutely obscene that it's a travesty that they're doing this um, as recreation um, for reasons that become apparent kind of later on. But, uh, and what James Goss does very cleverly is he writes the first couple of chapters from Romana's point of view. And for her, this is a completely alien pastime. 
And Goss has a lot of fun weaving in continuity references. So Romana is thinking back about her time with the Doctor. And he, and he writes, In her travels with the Doctor, Romana had reassembled the key to time, comma, thwarted Davros, comma, and outclassed the Nymon, which is a very tongue-in-cheek way of putting the Nymon on the same footing as the Black Guardian and Davros of the Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a clever line on almost every page. This is a, this is a laugh-a-minute book. It is. It is. It's um, it, it's very very wittily written. Um, I like the the bit about uh, when when the, the TARDIS arrives in the members' enclosure at Lords. And the, uh, the the kind of the spectators there are just very kind of English, that kind of idea about not wanting to make a scene or anything. So they just kind of tut under their breath and go, well, really? And stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> they don't react with absolute astonishment that the TARDIS is materialized out of thin air and um, two people have walked out of it. It's, uh, yeah, I think I feel like they, um, he, he gets that across really well. Um, and the fourth Doctor fits those kind of situations really well as well. Right. Romana um, is thinking back on her time with the Doctor, and she's uh, talking about his love of all things British. Yeah. She says, the Doctor was such an eccentric Anglophile. He liked stately homes so much, he'd blown up at least a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a great summation of the Tom Baker era. Definitely. The, the, the other line in there when they're talking about um, their kind of recent history, she says she thinks something like, they meet alien races smelling vaguely of Swarfaga. <laughs> yes. Which is the second Swarfaga joke we've had in our last podcast. We talked about Plague City, um, and the alien leeches in that are described as, as sounding like Swarfaga, I think, aren't they? Which is uh, a reference to the fact that, especially in the 70s, they used that to create the sound effect for a few aliens, didn't they? And they also used it, I think we discussed this in the last podcast as well, it was the actual green slime in the episode Inferno, the John Pertwee episode. Ah right, yeah, the uh, yeah, it was the stuff that was coming out of the the drill, the drilling operation that uh, turned yeah, people into the Yeah, leaks uh, out of the pipes and yeah. uh, turns the scientists into uh, primitive uh, werewolves. Yeah, so it's got a it's got a long history in, in Doctor Who, and it's uh, yeah another little reference to it. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of chapter two, as the Doctor and Romana are observing the match, the Doctor vanishes. And you wonder, now, why has he vanished? Has he uh, been abducted by an alien spacecraft? What's going on? And it turns out he hasn't literally vanished, but he's jumped down from the stands onto the pitch itself, and he starts arguing with the captains of the two teams, England and Australia, over what is the ashes. Yeah. And he, in chapter three, he picks a fight, saying, you don't even realize what these ashes are. These are the ashes of what? And he asks for the teams to give him the trophy. And, of course, before they can figure out what he's trying to do, the cricket pavilion launches into the sky, and out come the cricket men, who turn out to be very vicious killer robots, which you can easily envision coming out of 1970s Doctor Who. Yeah. And, and they look like cricketers in the fact that they're, they're all white. Their, their heads look like cricketing helmets, um, and their legs look like the... Um, the the padding, I don't know what it's called actually, the padding that, that cricketers wear um, on their shins, which have got, um, I think kind of, I think the original idea was that they have rockets in them and things so they could fly. Um, and so it turns out that, that cricket is actually from a race memory that humans have, 
of these terrible cricket men that um, that once waged war across the galaxy. Um, and their very distinctive weapons were cricket bats, which were used to decapitate people, but also to launch bombs, which were cricket balls. So they, they smacked these uh, um, ball bombs with the bat and sent them and, and blew stuff up. Uh, so this is why the Dr. Roman is so horrified that uh, humans are playing cricket as a, as a recreational thing. Um, and there's even a line where Romana says that there's a certain number of alien races have said that that was their reason for invading Earth was because of cricket. And that's why they always focus their attempts on the home counties, <laughs> which, um, again, just another very witty throwaway line that you get. And this is where I have to confess, as much as a fan I am of James Goss, this is where the book started to lose me a little bit. Because you have a book with a great witty Douglas Adams-esque line on almost every page and using my Kindle to highlight the parts of the book that I really enjoyed and wanted to go back to I've got highlights on almost every screen of my Kindle that's how many good lines there are but then the cricket men show up and they start decapitating the players Mm -hmm. and this is just a level of violence this could be very Eric Sayward-esque on television but I thought it was an uneasy fit a book that is so jocular and so jovial the violence is so grotesque and over the top that you're meant to laugh at it rather than be horrified by it yeah i'm not sure if that sort of satire is what doctor who does best i mean for my money doctor who works best when it's playing the horror straight rather than playing it for laughs and it's a very douglas adams-esque concept but when he was writing for doctor who he didn't really do that no no, that's true. Well, it's, it would he have been, wasn't decapitating cricket players for fun. Yeah, it would have been very difficult to put a lot of this on screen, um, <laughs> the, the, the stuff that the cricket men do, because they, there's several scenes throughout the book of this, isn't there? Whenever they turn up, there is mass carnage. Yes, and in a 1970s British movie budget, how are they going to get that on screen? Yeah, I think we'd have seen the explosions and, and people flying through the air, kind of like the A-team without seeing any, any blood particularly or, uh, or deaths. That's how I imagined it anyway. And I think the reaction shots in the book are probably more effective than the carnage itself. So, I mean, in Chapter 3, he writes, Confusion reigned, along with bewilderment, indignation, and all the other emotions the English are so very good at. Yeah. The Australian team just rolled their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the reaction shots are <laughs> very comical. Yeah. Um, uh, so at this point, they they realise that the the cricket men are back, um, but they were supposed to have been all been destroyed two million years ago. So they pile back into the TARDIS um, and go to Gallifrey, um, which I thought was interesting to see these two on Gallifrey, the the Doctor and Romana, because we never did on screen. Um, we so we saw the fourth Doctor. Uh, I guess before this, uh, a couple of times with the Deadly Assassin and the Invasion of Time, um, but that, but not kind of later on than that, and not with Romana, who is another kind of runaway Time Lord. Uh, so they they go back there and meet Barusa, which again, like you're saying about the kind of throwaway kind of continuity reference and things. So every time we saw Barusa on screen, he was in a different incarnation or played by a different actor. Uh, so they, they go into an explanation, or James Goss goes into an explanation of why this is, and it's some kind of like 
uh, karmic balance, isn't it? The doctor's so lucky and gets away with so gets out so many scrapes by surviving that um, Barusa is the opposite. Even though he stayed on Gallifrey and lives a very kind of sedate life, he keeps having bizarre accidents which cause him to uh, to regenerate. And Goth spends pretty much an entire chapter describing every unfortunate accident that Barusa has ever had. Yeah. <laughs> And this goes a long way, I guess, to explaining why Barusa becomes a villain in The Five Doctors. He wants to live forever because he's running out of regenerations. Yeah, I felt like that as well. Yeah, I felt like that was a nice... Um, because there's there's no other hint of that, really, is there, on uh, on screen. And the Galifian... No, they never explained on screen why they had to change actors every time Barusa came back. Yeah, because we know that Time Lords are kind of functionally immortal if as long as they don't put themselves in jeopardy. Um but uh, he's uh, <laughs> he is getting through them even quicker than the Doctor, isn't he? Uh, yes, much quicker. So, and the Gallifrey that we see depicted here is um, is very much that kind of uh, you know they're not the all powerful um, kind of godlike beings, are they? They're bureaucratic um, and kind of a bit doddery. Um, and the Doctor and Romana just kind of don't take it seriously at all, do they? They just kind of swan in. Demand to see Barusa. Well, at this point, the Doctor's still the president, actually, isn't he? So he does still have some sway. Right. What happens is, Goss is very consciously writing for the same Gallifrey that we saw in the Invasion of Time. So he incorporates the same bizarre set design where you have random couches sitting in the middle of corridors. Yeah. <laughs> and where the Doctor can't open the door of the TARDIS without getting arrested. So this is uh, an almost parody of the Gallifrey of the Invasion of Time. And the Doctor and Romana spend a lot of the Gallifrey chapters critiquing the furniture. Yeah. And the Doctor marches out. There's nobody to arrest him. So he finds a sofa, sits down, and waits to get arrested. Well, for those people who prefer the Time Lords to be like they were at the end of the War Games, it's, it's, it's kind of the other extreme of that, isn't it? It's the, uh, it's the kind of useless Time Lords, the, <laughs> uh, the ones who don't know much about their own powers or their own history <laughs> and... Uh, the other bit I really liked um, on Gallifrey was when they go to the Great Matrix Chamber and the Doctor says it's a bit dusty. Um, and then in the footnote, Romana remembers um, meeting an old cleaning lady in the TARDIS. She kind of thinks, oh, the Doctor's one to talk about it being a bit dirty. And then she remembers she met an old cleaning lady in the TARDIS one day with a mop and a bucket in the TARDIS corridor and then never saw her again. That's right. Which I remembered is um, a little nod back to the previous James Goss, Douglas Adams one, The Pirate Planet. There's a bit in that one where the Doctor is thinking about how untidy the TARDIS is. Um, and the line says, he had once hired a cleaner who had vanished inside the TARDIS with a duster and a bucket and never been seen again. He occasionally Until worried, now. Yeah, he said he occasionally worried about that. After all, was he paying her by the hour? Um, so... <laughs> I love that it was a throwaway line in the Pirate Planet, um, and then it's revisited here that she is actually still in there. <laughs> and he brings it back, right? Just, yeah, furiously just cleaning away for all this time and <laughs> all the adventures they've had between then and now. And then Roman, and um, I think in this bit it says Romana said, "What are you doing?" And she just leans on the mop and goes cleaning, and then carries on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like it's going to take her the rest of eternity to uh, to get the place clean. If they ever get around to novelizing the two Eric Sayward Dalek stories, she'll probably show up again. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of a revelation of the Daleks. 
Yeah, that's uh, it. Could be because um, it's continuing theme now. Yeah. <laughs> How many more Doctor Who novels will come out featuring the uh, cleaning lady hidden on board the TARDIS? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day she'll be freed um, and hand in a massive invoice, probably. So um, they. <laughs> That'll be a formidable invoice. Yeah. <laughs> So they go to the uh, the Great Matrix Chamber so that they can learn um, about the history of the planet Cricketas, where the cricket men have come from. Um, and we learn that this was a planet hidden from the rest of the universe behind a huge dust cloud. So they couldn't see any other stars or planets or anything. They believed that they were completely alone in the universe until one day a spacecraft crashed there. Um, they realized that there was life other than what there was in Cricketas. Uh, so it turned them into manic xenophobes, so a bit like the Elovians that we met in the prologue, they became hellbent on wiping out the rest of the universe as well. Right, and this is where it becomes very, very similar to life, the universe, and everything, which of course we didn't remember very well, but it's all there. Yeah, and it's two kind of races that we've met that are kind of unable to cope with with other races and, and decide, you know, that they don't want anything to do with them and they want to kind of arm themselves, um, which, you know, is depressingly for something that was written by Douglas Adams in the 70s, you know, the kind of nationalistic times that we're living through now is, um, you know, kind of depressingly familiar, isn't it? Very depressingly familiar. Although Goss is playing it more for laughs, I think, than going for any socio-political commentary. Yeah, there's, there's very little... Um, yeah, that you can. Uh, there's no kind of direct mapping onto real life kind of politics, but um, it's just that sense that uh, that you get from it, isn't it? But I suppose you could, uh, whatever time you were reading it, you, you could find some some examples. Um, I suppose it's just uh, it's kind of front of mind at the moment with with Brexit and and, and the Trump administration and things, isn't it? Here, yeah, yeah so, Douglas yeah. Adams, I think, was very topical when he was writing, and he was very cynical about politics in general. So that's almost a universal Douglas Adamsism. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it dovetails into our political system very, very nicely, even if that wasn't intentional on Goss's part. Absolutely. People of the planet Cricketas, they build the Cricket Men, who are these killer robots. Um, but basically, they, they're quite um, not a very advanced species, are they? But then they spend, they learn from the technology on the spaceship, advance very quickly gain the ability to travel through space and build these robots, robotic cricket men that they can send out to wipe out all life in the universe, which kind of by contrast to other times, the universe is enjoy the galaxies is enjoying a rare period of peace and harmony where everyone's kind of working together and, and they're, they're trading and there's no wars, um, which we then learn is because the white guardian got his hands on the key to time. Um, the doctor having assembled the pieces for him, and he was able to restore some balance. And in a nifty continuity reference in a book that is full of very nifty continuity references and Easter eggs, a dove lands on the White Guardian's head and stays there. Yeah. And of course, the next time we see the White Guardian chronologically on television after the Armageddon Factor, check that, after the Rebos operation, the next time we see him in Modern Undead, he's wearing... A white dove on his head. Yeah, yeah. What do so I mean to say? I think I mean enlightenment, not modern undead. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's. Uh, he's, he's still wearing the dove the next time we see him, all the way along in the Peter Davison era. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a. So Guardians really knows his stuff. It's uh, yeah, it's a very niche continuity reference, that isn't it? Where did the White Guardian get his 
his dove on his head from. But uh, yeah, it's uh, somebody had to explain it. So I'm glad Goss was the one who was able to get the explanation. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, they, uh, the peoples of the of the galaxy who are enjoying this period of peace. They decide to build a monument to to the peace, which looks like uh, what would look like to us would be the cricket stumps. Um, so it's made up of the three stumps with the two bales on top. Um, and the the bales, I think, become the ashes, don't they? While the, yes. the three um, the three stumps there's steel for strength and power, perspex for science and reason, which I thought that was really good because uh, in seventies Doctor Who, the the kind of the epitome of, of advancement in science is uh, is a society where everything's built out of perspex, isn't it? <laughs> But this is an interesting point. The word perspex is not very common here in the States. So when they republished Life, the Universe, and everything for the States, they changed perspex to plastic. Ah, right. So for the U.S. edition of this book, they should have changed perspex to plastic. Right. They did not. I don't, I mean, Just opportunity. I don't know what the difference between perspex and plastic is, to be honest. Um, I think Perspex is a trade name, which doesn't exist in America. Ah, right. Uh, that would explain it then. Um, yeah, but I think even like from the Three Doctors and things like that, um, all the technology on Gallifrey is always built with Perspex, uh, and a lot of um, kind of spaceship, you know, kind of uh, consoles and bridges and all that kind of thing. They often are. Well, I, I knew what it was, even if I didn't know the word for it. Yeah. Uh, so it's. Um, I think that that stands. That's standing for science and reason. Again, is a nice little link to the um, to the aesthetic of seventies Doctor Who, um, and then there's the wooden bale for the forces of nature, um, and the gold and gold one for prosperity and silver for peace. So the other two bales and the other stump is the uh, is the wooden one. So they go back and they they see that um, the cricket gate is destroyed. And a thousand years of carnage ensues then when the uh, the cricket men are laying waste to the galaxy uh, until the Time Lords um, finally interfere, which again is kind of unusual for them. But it's, it's I think it's an early point in their history when they've only just instituted their policy of non-intervention, haven't they? And in a very interesting narrative choice, Goss does not give this to us in a straight-up data dump, but he has the Doc and Romano walking around in the Matrix and the Matrix narrates all this for them with text scrolling across the sky. And they'll walk through a scene, open a door, and then move on to the next scene. And it becomes a montage narrated by the Matrix. Yeah. Really fascinating to read. Yeah, it was uh, with the Doctor and Romana kind of making witty, uh, witty rejoinders throughout, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's doing their own audio commentary over the Matrix narration. Yeah. <laughs> And then we come to a peace conference, which the Time Lords are not directly running, but they are standing in the background, influencing, whispering. Yeah, where they decide, having defeated the people of Krikitas, they're trying to decide now what to do with them, aren't they? And, of course, the one politician gets up on stage and says, well, the Cricket men are misunderstood, and they're not actually evil, and we should nurture them. And, of course, that's really a non-starter of an explanation. Yeah. Uh, so they decide. Um, the well, there's a as you say, there's a, a time lord delegation there. Delegation. There's uh, Cardinal Melia in a war tardis 
which we uh, we learned that there was 12 war TARDISes built um, for this war, um, or that they had. I can't remember. I might have said that they were used to fight the great vampires as well. Um, which takes us back to State of Decay, another nice continuity reference. Yeah, it does mention that, doesn't it? So there's 12 war TARDISes, um, and they're quite they're they're more sentient than the other ones, or more uh, kind of actively sentient. They um, it talks about how they influence their pilots. So the the cardinals that piloted in them, they went from being ordinary time lords who are, who are kind of dabbling in war to very bloodthirsty warmongers uh, when they regenerated because of the, their influence of their their war tardises. Um, yes. And it seems like the the War Tardis or Cardinal Melia uh, are the ones who put the suggestion out that the people of Cricketas can be hidden behind this wall of slow time, so that they will only be released when at the very end of the universe, where there's no other life, so they can live and not be kind of tormented by the idea of other races existing. Yes, they can enjoy being alone at the end of the universe. Yeah. But we know, of course, that the Time Lords at the end of the universe and the Sisters of Khan and uh, Danny, uh, Danny Pink's descendant. And it's pretty crowded there, actually. And Ashilda or me is there. There's, uh, <laughs> there's <not laughs> yeah, many. the end of the universe of Doctor Who is a very noisy place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, particularly in the 12th Doctor era. It's somewhere he visits quite a bit, isn't it? Yes. There's a couple of references to the Master the Doctor and Romana are basically in a simulation of the the peace conference. So they're able to go into the war TARDIS and see what's happening in there. Um, and they mention that, you know, the different decor that TARDISes can have about how the Master has a, all the black walls and everything. Um, and there's a reference right. to the Master when they're on Gallifrey as well. There's one later on where they talk about the Doctor and Romana being in a car chase where they're um, chasing the Master down a motorway. And it made me think maybe the master was going to be behind everything in this book because we learn sort of later on that there is a bad guy behind everything who isn't the the one that's initially unveiled so i kind of it turns out to be right. a red herring but the number of master references in it made me think um are we going to get to see the fourth doctor and romana versus the master which again would be a really interesting dynamic i think um seeing them up against another time lord and what interested me along the same lines is Goss makes reference to there being two canine two canines on Gallifrey. So I wasn't sure after they leave Gallifrey and go off to find the various pieces of the Wicked Gate, which canine they were traveling with. The Doctor is not quite sure, I think, if it is the original canine who stayed with Leela, or if it's Canine Mark II, which he built after the invasion of time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I There's thought There's a little that... bit of canine ambiguity there. They they might um, yeah there, there might be kind of some kind of a switch as well but again that doesn't come to anything does it um, no it just sort of sits there yeah so yeah at which point they're attacked by a cricket man at the conference despite the fact that it's um, kind of a virtual reality simulation in the Matrix where the Doctor well K nine manages to destroy the cricket man by there's a they create a hologram so it goes for the hologram of the Doctor, Romana and K-9. K-9 shoots the roof, uh, which collapses on the Cricket Man. And the Cricket Man tells the Doctor that he will meet the three gods who prop up the universe. Um, which made me think of the gods of Ragnarok from the Great Show in the Galaxy initially. 
Uh, I made a similar note, actually. I guess we were thinking along the same lines there. I've got the same note here. Yeah, but um, it turns out to be three different gods, as we, as we sort of find out later on. Yes. Uh, so the, uh, they then go and they, they, they leave the Matrix and take the TARDIS um, and watch the, the destruction of the Wicket Gate for the second time because it was then the, the key to the slow time envelope which imprisoned the planet Cricketass. Um, there's one cricket ship that, that managed to escape the war when, when the Time Lords got involved and, uh, and defeated them. So it destroys the Wicket Gate. So the ship and all the pieces of the Wicket Gate fall into the time vortex uh, and are spread throughout time and space, at which point the Doctor says, I knew it, we're on another quest. Um, so soon after the key to time. Yeah, and this is kind of page 90 of the book, and at this point you still don't really kind of know where it's going or what, what kind of shape it's going to take, and you think, oh, well, that's going to be the story now. It's going to be a quest throughout time and space for the pieces of the Wicked Gate. They'll reassemble them, um, and then that's how they'll be defeated. Um, but it, it actually is, is all kind of tidied up fairly quickly from there. You just get this series of kind of little vignettes almost, don't you, where um, from James Goss's notes at the end of the book, these are all quite quite already well worked out in Douglas Adams's notes, so um, these are what uh, what Douglas Adams intended. So you visit a number of different planets, and it was uh, different from the locations of the missing pieces in life, the universe, and everything. Yeah. So they go to different places to find the pieces of the Wicket Gate, but the planets are all very interesting. The problem is each planet is gone after one chapter. So Two of the planets could make a full novel in and of itself. So there was the planet. Uh, where where it always rains, and then there was the plan where everybody is passive aggressive, and the doctor is put on trial for not apologizing. Yeah, and that one that one um, does seem very prescient. I mean, I'm sure it was kind of a thing in, in when Douglas Adams was writing it, but from the you know kind of in the age of the internet and social media, um, that has much more resonance now, doesn't it? Of the idea of people taking offense, and then uh, you know they're taking offense in return and then the whole kind of situation just escalating every time from every interaction right it's a classic douglas Adams social commentary but like with the uh with brexit it's just uh it's prescient today even though he didn't intend it for this particular world it still works yeah absolutely that's how keen his social commentary was it is and it's it's those kind of observations i think about the absurd absurdities of life that you get from douglas adams so the the first planet they visit you've got the great khan who is a dictator who is on the verge of um, completing his conquest of, of an entire planet. Um, I think there's like one island left, but he just can't make it work because of his diary um, about when it's actually going to be invaded. Um, he's, he's got so many kind of things in his diary and clashes and things like that that they can't settle on a date. Um, as you say, there's, um, there's the planet, uh, I think it's Morive 2. So that's where everyone Morive 2, yes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Why Fish Don't Need Mortgages um, is, is the chapter which we've got a reading from, from Eric Stadnick, so we will, we'll go to that now. The people of the planet Devilin were really excellent fishermen. The problem was that they'd long since stopped catching fish. Their world was a large mass of splendidly fecund water, teeming with all sorts of aquatic life, from fantastically succulent prawns to rainbow-colored fish to jewel-shimmering seaweeds that were as rich in flavor as they were dazzling in beauty. One of the things that Devlin didn't really have was land. There were a few islands here and there, but no one really cared for them. 
The people of Devlin loved being at sea. They loved the feel of their coral boats as they glided through the water. All a Devlinian really had to do in life was learn how to build a boat. And really, that was fairly easy. Once that was done, they could just float along the calm waters, as limpid as those limpid pools that secretaries have in novels instead of eyes. Every day was a glorious day of just gliding over the waters, pulling out a snack whenever you were hungry, maybe joining a neighboring boat for a chat, or to try out some of their squid wine, admittedly an acquired taste. So it followed, glorious day in and glorious day out, until, of course, one day when, after you'd eaten your last prawn, sailed your last wave, and somehow managed to swallow your last squid wine, you slipped gently over the side of your boat and sank steadily, happily, to the bottom. This merry life was bobbing along very nicely until a small escape pod smacked onto the seas. Inside was a man in a tearing hurry. His name was Ogninimus Fug and he was, unfortunately, an estate agent. He'd been on his way to complete a really very complicated deal which had involved selling off the historic offices of the Cosmic Broadcasting Bureau and turning them into flats. He'd been met by a heavily armed flotilla of angry news anchors. You'll never get away with this, he'd cried, because Ogninimus Fug was just the sort of person to cry that instead of just saying it. It turned out he was wrong. If you're going to upset the CBB, you should probably remember they own all the cameras and quite a few very well-armed battleships. Hence his sudden, fiery arrival on the planet Devilin. Ognonymous Fug was terribly grateful for the rescue, delighted by the reviving seafood platter, a little bit alarmed by the squid wine, and wholly curious about the world he now found himself on. The Devilinians told him of their endless lazy days spent in coral boats, and filling his fist with more prawns, Fug was inclined to agree that their lives were perfect, until he spotted something looming on the horizon. What's that? he asked. Oh, they told him, that's land. We don't bother with that. The problem with the city was that no one in their right mind would have built it, but Ognonymous Fug was an estate agent, and he'd seen an opportunity. He'd explained to the Devilinians that, as they had so little land, it was worth a large amount of money. They'd laughed at him, as none of them were interested in land, and had no idea of money. So they'd let him buy the land off of them in return for a recipe for paella. Then he'd started building. The first thing he built was a bank. It took a while, as first he had to convince some Devilinians to stop sailing and come and learn how to build. They've offered to pop by in their evenings and help out, but he'd been firm. No fishing for them. Instead, he explained other people would bring them fish in return for money, which was what the bank was for. Ah, said the people of Devlin, fish tokens. He then explained that they couldn't leave their boats cluttering up the small shore, as this would spoil the view of the harbor front development. What's one of those, they had asked. Well, he told them, you'll have to have somewhere to sleep when you're building the bank. So, as they could no longer sleep in their boats, they'd build houses in the harbor and a small shop for the selling of fish, and of course the bank which gave them money. They needed the money to buy the fish, and also to pay for their houses. You'd have thought that, at this point, someone would have smelt a rotten herring. Instead, the little old lady who ran the fish store said that, while she wasn't quite sure what money was, she was getting an awful lot of it for handling over fish, which everyone knew grew on seas, so it seemed worth the bother. And really, what harm did it do? She actually had so much money she was able to get a house in the harbor with a really nice view of her boat. 
which is almost as nice as being on the boat. Ognonymous Fug knew he was winning the day a second fish shop opened. Then he built a second bank. That stymied the people of Devlin a bit. Why were there two banks? Choice, Fug told them. One bank, you see, might offer you three coins for three fish one day, but only two coins for three fish the next, whereas the bank next door might offer you four coins for two fish. Why would you do that, the Devilinians demanded. It's called a free market. As well as the second bank, he also built some more houses on the other side of the island. These, he said, had an even better view of the sea. They also cost more money. For a while, the people in the original houses left. What better view of the sea was there than theirs? But then they worried. What if he had a point? So they decided to swap their houses on one side of the island for the other. This was the point at which they discovered that they needed more money in order to do this. Ah, well, they said, not a problem. We'll just get a few more fish. After all, how much can it cost? A house, well, it's hardly worth an octopus, is it? Fug explained politely but firmly that the exchange had been made in money, a lot of money, which was, of course, available from the banks in the form of a loan, with naturally a modest interest rate. What's an interest rate? Don't worry, I'll explain that when we've built some more houses, said Agnonymous Fug. So thank you very much to Eric for that reading. Eric, um, we missed you in the United States, come home! <laughs> Uh, when we were in um, Prague, I say, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was very unseasonably cold at the time we were there. It was sort of at least minus eight every day. It was, uh, yeah, we, we didn't pick a good week to go, really. Uh, while Britain was kind of under loads of snow because of the, the storm that they called the beast from the east, uh, there was no snow in Prague, but it was just kind of bitterly, bitterly cold every day. My wife bought basically a new wardrobe while we were there. She bought... Uh, uh, a heavier coat and the kind of new scarves and everything like that just to uh, just to survive. We're just turning the corner from winter to spring in New York, but it's been unseasonably cold. In fact, we had a massive blizzard ourselves last week. Of course, it was 45 degrees the next day, and it melted very fast, but it was a very massive blizzard while it lasted. We, the snow we had here, there was, um, and all of our neighbors were snowed in for a couple of days, couldn't make it to work, so... It's pretty typical that um, I was on holiday the one week when I could have stayed off work with a legitimate <laughs> reason. Uh, <laughs> That's almost Douglas Adams-esque, uh, comical bad timing. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe it. Um, really bad timing. Um, but um, everyone should check out Eric's um, Prague blog, where he talks Prague about blog, uh, yeah. Yeah, the experience of, um, as American, going to live in Prague, teaching English as a foreign language. Uh, and for Patreon subscribers, there's an excellent podcast that he does as well. Um, which I really enjoy, uh, as well as Doctor Who: The Writers' Room, which is one of my favourite Doctor Who podcasts. So and um, Eric's contribution to the War Games commentary for Who Against Guns. Yeah, I think I think episode nine. I think he's, I saw on Twitter he said he's he's doing. I believe. Um, so uh, that'll be really good as well. I'll put links to all of these in the show notes as well. Uh, so on on that planet where the um, the estate agent has kind of hoodwinked everybody into. Uh, kind of needing mortgages and, and whatnot. Uh, the Doctor and Romana find themselves in that situation where they, they end up having to work to pay a mortgage um, and basically kind of forget about the quest for a little while, don't they? Um, <laughs> as they just get sucked into this absurd situation. Um, and the Doctor is miserable just uh, living in a flag, working on an assembly line. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and it kind of makes you think it's, it's it's not much of an exaggeration of real life as well um which is kind no, of, not uh, at all. the the best kind of satire like that is um so the finally they reached the planet Bethsalamin, i think if i'm pronouncing that correctly that's how i pronounced it too yeah so this is the perfect planet um there's just peace there's um there's no kind of crime or anything there um until the cricket men arrive. But it's and, funny because the doctor spends most of the chapter wondering what's wrong behind the scenes. He's trying to solve the problem, but there is no problem to solve. Yeah. <laughs> and he's convinced there's an evil computer behind it or something or the other. Yeah. But of course, it's just an actual perfect planet. Yeah, you think something must be controlling them. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is a bit like Twice Upon a Time when the doctor doesn't know what to do. He goes, when, the, when there isn't an evil plot. Uh, but when the cricket men arrive this time, the doctor manages to sneak into their ship, which I don't think we mentioned this before, resembles a, a cricket pavilion. And that's where the design for cricket pavilions comes from uh, in this yes. story. That they, they, That's what their ships look like. And he realizes that it's tr- dimensionally transcendental like a TARDIS is. Uh, so he manages to sneak inside and finds a huge red lever on the wall. Um, which kind of just says on and off. And when he flicks it to off, all the cricket men shut down. So he realizes that, in fact, they are just robots and they're not sentient robots, which had been assumed after the war last time. And and he realizes also that they're imprisoned, that the the five million robots from the original war are actually imprisoned on Sharda. The prison planet, obviously, from the episode Charter. Which was novelized by Garrett Roberts about five years ago. Yeah, and that kind of kicked off this run of BBC books um, uh, of adaptation. Because he was originally going to do City of Death, didn't he? But then he seemed to walk away from it uh, and be replaced by James Goss. But yeah, but before we get shot, Goss sidesteps and starts talking about the Turing test. Only in this book, it's not Professor Turing, it's Professor Boring. Yeah. And we get a chapter on the boring test, what makes a sentient robot versus a non-sentient robot. And, that, and that's the issue that they, um, the, the Time Lords and their allies had assumed that they were sentient robots, believed them to be sentient robots. Um, but it seems like they're very basic robots. You know, the fact that there's just a big off switch can, uh, can shut them all down. Right. Which, again, it's... Um, there's a kind of a lack of seriousness in the book, isn't it? It's a hugely entertaining book, and I, I kind of re- would recommend it to anyone because it's it's a very enjoyable read. But from page to page, it is tremendously entertaining, and it's a very clever and very, very witty. Between the jokes and the continuity references, there's something to enjoy on every page. But it does get wearying after a while, especially going from planet to planet without a through line. It's very much in the Douglas Adams. Um, Hitchhiker's vein, but it's not very Doctor Who-y. Yeah. And that Doctor Who takes its scenarios a little more seriously and usually is a little more parsimonious about its setting. So one or two planets, seven or eight characters. This book is so grand in scope that it becomes a little scattershot and hard to enjoy with a through line. Yeah, there's... And and you, what you get in the TV series is the Doctor taking the threat much more seriously than he does here as well. There's there's not a lot of weight to it. It feels like because Doctor Romana just kind of breezes through every scene, even though they say all oh, the cricket men are awful and uh, you know they're they're a real danger. 
whenever they're actually faced with them or they're faced with any danger, they're so breezy and nonchalant. Um, it, it feels like it lacks a little bit of weight and, and there's no real tension, is there, or anything like that? Even in season 17, when Tom Baker was at his most out of control and was literally walking through sets or literally chewing the scenery, like in Creature from the Pit, Lala Ward always played it straight. So yeah. as off the wall as Tom Baker was being, if you watch Lala Ward, I believe you were in the middle of a very serious adventure. Yeah. <clears throat> Not only that, again, if you have a better recollection of life, the universe, and everything than you or I did, this is a book you've already read before because it is essentially the same plot with the same cricket men with the same motivation. Yeah, and it suits the characters of Hitchhikers more not to take it that seriously, doesn't it? I think the, the, the way those characters were created and, and written right. and performed. Right, Marvin the Paranoid Android is a much more comical figure than K-9, who is essentially a serious character yeah. disguised as a, as a robot dog. Yeah, definitely. Then you have Slarda Barfist in Life, Universe, and Everything kind of as your guide, whereas here you don't have that. No. Um, you have the... Uh, well, basically, you have the the what would have been read by the book in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but it's just the prose in the books, isn't it? Just the text. Um, but as we right. said before, it's very much in the in the in the tone of voice um, of the book of Simon Jones. Uh, so the closest analogy that came to my mind when I was reading this uh, several years ago, Francis Ford Coppola made his version of Dracula with Gary Oldman who's yeah. now an Oscar winner as Dracula so he took the Bram Stoker novel and he made his own script and it was basically Dracula from Dracula's point of view with Gary Oldman playing six or seven different characters all different aspects of Dracula but this is to say when the Francis Ford Coppola movie came out they novelized the movie so in the early 1990s, you could go to the bookstore, you buy the novelization of Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola's script. Now, you don't need a novelization of Dracula because it's already based on one of the most famous <laughs> novels ever written. So the book is almost comically redundant in its yeah. existence. <laughs> and this book is a novelization of a book that already came out 30 or 40 years ago, Life, the Universe, and Everything. Yeah. So it's the same book with different characters in slightly different settings. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? It's unusual. It's definitely yeah. unusual. Not unenjoyable. Again, every page is hilarious. However, as a Doctor Who novel, I think it's a very uneasy fit. And as a rewrite of a not even 40-year-old book, it's even an uneasier fit because if you're a devoted science fiction fan, you now have life, the universe, and everything on your shelf twice. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um it's, uh, I suppose it's getting a bit like Shadow, isn't it, where we're going to end up with multiple versions of uh, <laughs> the same thing. Um, yes, there are now uh, seven different versions of Shadow going around yeah. with, different, with different doctors. Um, and in this story, as I say, they, they end up going back to Shadow, which, um, I mean, that wouldn't have been in the movie version, obviously, because uh, didn't wasn't even transmitted. But it's, I think it's a kind of example of Douglas Adams reusing his ideas. He just describes it as a Time Lord prison. But what's lovely is he has to go back to see Professor Cronotis to get the book, which will allow him to pilot the TARDIS to Shada. So there's some more nice continuity and some nice nostalgia in there by having the Fourth Doctor revisit Cronotis because they, they're great together in, in the TV show as well, aren't they? 
And with the reconstructed version of Shada having just come out, you can now go back and watch Dennis Carey's performance, which is really charming. Yeah, it's, it ties in very nicely in that, doesn't it? Yeah, because they would have come out about the same time. I think Shada came out in December, didn't it? Um, and Cricket Men came yeah. out. Well, the Cricket Men had a, a sort of an official release date of, of early January, but it was in, in some bookshops in the UK. A couple of weeks before that, I found it in a, in a Waterstones in Scotland, um, sort of in December. But Amazon still had, I think it was like the 8th of January or something like that, or the 18th of January. Um, and January 18th is when my copy delivered. Yeah, and then and yes. Amazon weren't putting it out until then. And then the BBC Books, even, even Twitter feed, had that as the release date. So I don't know if Waterstones had some kind of exclusive or whether they just put them on the shelves early. Um, by mistake, but uh, yeah, it was it was a nice surprise walking in and finding it and being able to get it uh, get it read while I was off over Christmas or get it started anyway. Um, but yeah, the the two do go hand in hand quite nicely with the new version of Shada, let you say. And it's great to see some new new Cronotis material because he's still as um, forgetful and eccentric uh, as he was in the uh, in the story Shada. Yeah, that character almost writes itself. He can get chapters and chapters out of Professor Cronotus bumbling around his rooms at Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Doctor goes to see Professor Cronotus on his own. Meanwhile, Romana is um, supposedly going to pilot the cricket men's ship that looks like a cricket pavilion back to Gallifrey to, um, you know, to kind of show them that, that they've been defeated or whatever. Uh, but what she's actually done is um, lowered the shields on the TARDIS and materialised the cricket pavilion inside the TARDIS so that she can go to Sharda as well because we learned that she's actually been possessed um, and goes to Sharda to release the five million cricket men who were imprisoned there. It's not really given the weight that it should be that Romana is, uh, has been possessed, has betrayed the Doctor... Is releasing the cricket men, and you kind of at that point again. I thought, ah, this is what the rest of the book's going to be like. Um, it's going to be the Doctor versus Romana because they've already set up throughout the book that she is slightly more competent than him, um, that she you know can take control of situations better and things like that. So you think, oh, this is going to yes. be um, this is going to be a very you know kind of even match that the Doctor will struggle to defeat her, and obviously you know, not kill her or anything. Um, but again, it's just given no kind of real weight, even though um, she's possessed. She's not possessed for very long. Um, and the Doctor just uh, just kind of deals with it in a very nonchalant way as well, doesn't he? It would have been a great story in and of itself. If you go back to the BBC books, The Ancestor Cell, which was one of the eight Doctor novels, basically is the Doctor versus Romana, after Romana has her evil regeneration. Right. Is that the one that the one where Gallifrey is destroyed? That was the one where Gallifrey is destroyed and the doctor destroys it and loses his memory and then yeah, is then sent back in time to Earth in the twentieth century to live out his life for a hundred years while the TARDIS repairs itself. Yeah, I remember really enjoying that series of books that was set immediately after Ancestor Cell, um, where he's lost his memory and you say he's living through the twentieth century. Um the kind of the long way around. Does it? Is Father Time? I think is one of the books in that run. I thought it was excellent. Is that Lance Park. Yeah, Father Time was the uh, Lance Parkin book, and there was a Terence Dix uh, political satire set during the Cold War, and then there was a book with Turing as well. There was a book called The Turing Test. Yeah. Sections narrated by Alan Turing, Graham Greene, and Joseph Heller. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one as well. 
Um, yeah, that was a great, great team. Can't remember the ancestor sell that well for some reason, but I remember the. Ancestor sell had some problems. It was a uh, Lawrence Miles book, not written by Lawrence Miles, and they were trying to piece together his ideas. And parts of the book were very good, and parts of the book were very dull. But now that you have Day of the Doctor in the new series with the Doctor destroying Gallifrey and then bringing it back, it almost mirrors the Ancestor Cell and its follow-up of the Gallifrey Chronicles. Yeah. So those books also have kind of been overwritten by the new series. But yeah. in the Ancestor Cell, Romana had turned evil and was combating the Doctor throughout most of the book. Right, I can't remember that at all. I, I mean, I would have read it when it came out, but that would have been, I guess, the early 2000s now. Yeah, it came out in the year 2000, so that book uh, recently uh, turned 18 years old, which, yeah. boy, we're getting old. Yeah, it's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> but there was some talk recently about the 60th anniversary. I think David Tennant had done an interview, um, and I realized we're halfway there already. It's already five years since the 50th. Um, and it just feels like the blink of an eye. So their 60th anniversary is going to come around in no time at all, isn't it? And then uh, there'll be all that kind of wild speculation again. Will David Tennant and Eccleston and Matt Smith come back? Well, at that point, we'll be able to do the five Doctors again, using Doctors 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Yeah. Um, uh, hopefully, we'll still be on uh, the 13th Doctor at that point. Hopefully, uh, we'll get one that's going to uh, kind of want to stay more than three years well given the increasingly slow pace with which Doctor Who is produced it'll probably <laughs> yes. be Jodie Whittaker's second or third season yeah that's true five years from now so she'll still be around yeah so the the Cricket Men released the uh, the Doctor decides to go back to the planet Cricketass to try and get the people there to change their minds uh, about wiping out the rest of the universe um, so when the the Doctor Roman is now free of the um, of the influence of the Cricket Man, uh, which is it's quite witty the way she's kind of delivering all these supervillain lines, isn't she? And the Doctor's yes. just kind of a bit embarrassed for her <laughs> that she's kind of resorting to all these cliches. And then when she uh, when she snaps out of it, she says, "I didn't say anything embarrassing, did I?" And it, it says, uh, "No, the Doctor lied." <laughs> <laughs> They go back to Kritas, and there's, there's, as they go back, there's, um, there's a bit of a, a second dig at the BBC here, isn't there, about what an unwieldy bureaucracy it is. Um, there was a little bit in, in the reading that we had, but it, I think in that it's the, the CBB or something, isn't it, about the way uh, they turn TV centre into flats. Um, yes, which is exactly what happened in real life. Yeah, and then this is, uh, they talk about an adventure that Romana had where she had to go undercover at the BBC because the Celestial Toymaker had taken over the light entertainment department. <laughs> and she talks about how, even compared to Gallifrey, the BBC is just this hopeless bureaucracy where nothing can ever be done. Um, which makes you think that James Goss is speaking from bitter experience. Ain't that the truth. Yeah. And, and when they reach Cricketass, they, they actually meet the rebels first, who are people who uh, don't want to destroy the entire universe. Um, and they meet a sort of a friendly cricket man who is, uh, who's married one of the, the rebels. Um, and he's going to be kind of a surrogate father to her, to the, to her baby that she's pregnant with. Um, and the doctor discovers that the ship that crashed there, that kicked the whole thing off in the first place 
wasn't really an alien ship that crash landed there. It was a scale model of a ship which somebody had deliberately crashed there in order to engineer the events um, that, uh, that, that kind of unfolded in the conflict. Right. Similar to the original Douglas Adams novel, Life of the Universe and everything. Right. Which I believe Hactar, the computer, had manipulated that situation in motion. Yeah, so we um, we learn. Well, at this point, the Doctor and Mana then get back in the TARDIS again. As you say, this, this kind of jumps about all over the place. Uh, they travel back in time to Alovia, which was the planet from the prologue, um, who had who built the computer Hactar, who built the ultimate super weapon, the supernova bomb, which but designed a floor into it. Um, and they they go to the moon and talk to Hactar. Um, and realize that uh, he's been lying to his creators, that it won't take 10 years to create the bomb. And they, so they travel forward 10 years from there to the point when the bomb is produced, which is a bit like the scene in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where Deep Thought after, is it two millennia or something like that? Um, yes. To announce the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything. And the bomb that it produces is a small red ball like a cricket ball. Um and events escalate very quickly <laughs> to the point when they activate the bomb almost immediately, and that's when they realise that it's uh, that it's actually a dud. So the Doctor and Romana from there go back to the planet Cricketas, where they get locked up and tortured. Um, and again, this is just doesn't have any any real significance because they just kind of latted off all of the kind of mind probes and uh, torture devices that the the Cricketas people try and use on them um, have no effect so they just kind of uh, they're getting wheeled from one torture chamber to another and they pass each other as the, in the corridors they get wheeled and they you know sort of just have a bit of a chat and things this is a book where it's very easy to lose the plot because it moves along so fast and never stops to actually give anything any any real weight yeah yeah um, so eventually they kind of get an audience with the with the government of Krutas where the doctor announces that They've actually been manipulated all along, um, and that a god has done it, which um, surprises them because they don't actually have any religious beliefs on this planet. It's quite a revelation when the Doctor reveals this. So it's kind of quite near the end of the story at this point. Um, the the cricket men decide that well they've they've created um, a replica of the supernova bomb that the Elovians built. Um, they try to detonate it, but again, they've they've actually created a bomb which is a replica of the original one in the sense it's got the same fault built into it, so it doesn't go off. So they launched a cricket fleet across the universe instead. Um, the Doctor and Romana kind of split forces at this point. Romana goes off uh, to try and stop the fleet, and the Doctor goes to meet God, so he takes the TARDIS and K-9 to the dust cloud, which has obscured the planet throughout history from the rest of the universe uh, to try and reason with God. Romana goes to Gallifrey, first of all. She saves um, the capital. Then her and Barusa release the 11 remaining war TARDISes that are still on Gallifrey to go and uh, fight the, the cricket ships. And then, in just a really kind of weird scene, which um, uh, you maybe could imagine in the movie, Romana goes and recruits Margaret Thatcher when she's Prime Minister, uh, to help. She, despite the number of times that Romana's been to her, she doesn't really understand the kind of political and, and um, 
political structure of the planet. She thinks that there is one leader, um, and then it must be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, because the United Kingdom must be the most important country, because that's where the Doctor always goes, and that's where the aliens always try and invade first. Invade the home counties, yes. Yeah, which is a, it's a logical assumption from her point. <laughs> But she's totally nonplussed when, when Thatcher explains that that isn't the case at all. Margaret Thatcher tells her about the, the nuclear weapons that they've got and Ronald Reagan's Star Wars defence programme, which Romana assumes is a defence programme which is designed to defend the Earth from space, not that it is pointed at other planets on the, <laughs> on the same, uh, other countries on the same planet. Right. So um, basically between them, and it's quite, it's, it's, Sort of weirdly sympathetic. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher is a weirdly sympathetic character um, in this book. Uh, you know, kind which of may be the book's greatest achievement. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. sympathetic. Yeah, I mean, I suppose Doctor Who has kind of uh, they've had Nixon in it, haven't they? And, and gave him a fairly sympathetic portrayal. Um, yes. Uh, as well as Churchill. Um, you know, they're all kind of people who you know fairly steeped in controversy. I suppose it's just that, that Thatcher's a fairly recent one. You know, it's kind of more in living memory for most viewers. Most well, readers. most of you remember Margaret Thatcher as the villainess from the Happiness Patrol in 1988. Yeah. <laughs> That's for fans big, of the classic series. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a big um, kind of claim to fame for isn't it? Um, yes. But how, how they would have achieved this in the movie, I'm not sure. I suppose like um, the, the Bond movie... Uh, for your eyes only, isn't it? They have Margaret Thatcher in at the end. Um, but the cricket men, unless I get my UK politics off by a couple of years, this would have been plotted out before Margaret Thatcher became prime minister. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think they don't actually name her in this. Um, so I suppose she could be the, the unnamed female prime minister from Terror of the Zygons. Uh, who I believe Nicholas Courtney had said was supposed to be, was it Shirley Williams? Right, yeah, because it's, um, it, yeah, it is Terror of the Zygons, isn't it, where the Brigadier gets a phone call um, authorising the missile strike on the Zygon ship. And says, yes, ma'am, instead of yes, sir. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it sort of, um, it sort of is Margaret Thatcher from the way it's written, and the way she refers to Ronald Reagan as Ronnie and things like that, it uh, reminds you of their their kind of yes. partnership. Um, uh, so, yeah, the, and then um, quite unexpectedly, Margaret Thatcher goes with, or the, prime, the UK Prime Minister goes with Romana in the pavilion into space. Um, and it's, it's not really, I didn't really find it clear what happened here, but they basically detonate all the nuclear weapons on Earth and then use that energy to trap the cricket men fleet but it's not really made clear. They say that it's Margaret Thatcher's idea, but it's not really clear what she's done. But basically they're frozen in some way, whether it's a time loop or it's slow time or something like that. Um, so the fleet that were heading to Earth are defeated anyway. Um, and therefore there are no more nuclear weapons. And Romana suggests that, um, she, that, that the Prime Minister should just keep quiet about it um, because they're more effective as a deterrent anyway, effectively. That uh, right. it's it's as long as people think they have them, that you know they, they might be able to kind of uh, maintain peace. Meanwhile, the doctor goes uh, to the cloud. He finds that it's Haktar that's been behind it all. That he wasn't destroyed by the Elovians. Um, that he's been manipulating events, but that he said he was persuaded to change his mind. Having saved the universe originally, 
he was persuaded uh, that he should uh, he should kind of want to destroy the universe. And I was pretty convinced at this point that it was going to be the master because, as I say, there'd been so many references to the master. Right, you had mentioned that, and that's a very reasonable assumption to make. But it's actually the war TARDIS that we met much earlier that belonged to Cardinal Melia. But the Doctor has already cleverly defeated the, uh, the cricket men because the main switch on the planet Cricketas, where they can be switched on and off, he's put masking tape over the, um, the signs that say on and off. And he, in felt tip, he's written off on the masking tape over the on part and on over the off part. In a very unlikely sort of way. <laughs> yeah, so When you said the doctor writing in felt tip, all I could remember was City <laughs> of Death, where the doctor goes back in time and writes, this is a fake. Yeah. <laughs> on all of the boards on which the Mona Lisa duplicates are going to be painted. I imagine it's felt the same. Felt show up on any x-ray. Yeah, I imagine it's the same felt tip that he's got in his pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's the same pen. And with James Goss having novelized City of Death, I'm sure that's what he had in mind. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he did, yeah. I'm surprised he didn't even... Um, yeah, kind of make it explicit that it's uh, <laughs> that it's the same one. Um, so they go back to Lords. This is the very end of the book. Go back to Lords Cricket Ground to give the ashes back. The Doctor decides he'd like to have a go at bowling. Um, he pulls a, a ball out of his pocket, starts to bowl it. As the ball leaves his hand, he realizes that it is actually the uh, the bomb that had been slipped into his pocket when he's in Hakkar's dust cloud. And it's activated, and he's actually bowling at a cricket man. Um, but he's such a good bowler that it bounces awkwardly. The uh, the cricket man can't hit it. The umpire, or the, no, it's not the umpire. The I don't know the guy that stands behind. This is my complete lack of cricket knowledge here. The guy that stands no, behind. No, baseball. That is called an umpire. Ah, right. I think it probably. I thought an umpire was the kind of referee but I'm, I might be getting that totally wrong and there'll be people who are really into cricket <laughs> just probably got their head in their hands at this point whoever stands behind the wickets in um, in cricket anyway maybe it's the umpire he catches it the doctor's kept on running he takes the cricket back out of the cricket man's hand decapitates the robot with it um, and then uh, that's kind of the end of the story at that point so there's, there's loads of other um, bits and pieces and and uh, as you say, kind of side stories and deviations and, and whatnot, but that's the uh, that's basically the end of it. And that was how life, the universe, and everything resolves. But Arthur manages to dive and catch the ball and not hit the ground and learns how to fly, which becomes a plot point in the fourth book. So long, thanks for all the fish. That does sound familiar. Is this where where flying... Arthur then has discovered the secret of flight, which is to fall and not hit the ground and I can't tell you at age 13 how many times I tried to do that <laughs> I do remember that yeah the secret of flying yeah I do remember there that should have been a disclaimer kids don't try this at home yeah <laughs> it doesn't actually work kids yeah. it doesn't actually work the, I think the, the latest book that I remember out the HA's Guide the Galaxy series is when he's um, he's trapped on a planet and we're very primitive and he, he thinks well I'm from a relatively civilized kind of culture I can I can kind of help develop them. And then he realizes that he doesn't know how any technology works, even a pen. And the only thing that he can bring to them that they haven't discovered is the sandwich. So he becomes a sandwich maker for this community. Um, and then that's the perfectly normal beasts are on that planet as well. Um, but that bit really sticks in my head because I thought it made me think, yeah, I, if I was, um, you know, kind of came into contact with a, 
um, you know, kind of a, a very kind of primitive civilization. There's nothing from my society that I would be able to replicate, really. <laughs> yeah, I would not be able yeah. to build a cell phone or a tablet or a yeah. computer or a DVD player. That's it, yeah, or, or even a pen. Like, <laughs> or even a pen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, th- I say, I think what we said before, basically, it's a hugely entertaining book. It's very, very funny, wittily written. The, the continuity is done, um, not for continuity's sake, but to kind of make fun of it a little bit, to, to pull things together and, uh, and make jokes. But it It's was, a very clever book, and I loved reading the book. I'm just not sure that I love the end result. Yeah, it, it is more of a Douglas Adams book than a Doctor Who book, isn't it? Uh, literally, since we've already seen it in print as Life, the Universe, and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it's a great book. I'm just not sure it's a great Doctor Who book in terms of what you and I come to expect from Doctor Who and like about Doctor Who. Yeah, it's it's that lack of menace, I think, uh, a lack of weight to it. Um, and it's there's so many ideas, the great ideas that would, like you said before, would make a great book on their own. Um, They're effectively kind of just throwaway lines. The uh, you know but, each of the planets that are visited where where the kind of the bales have wound up would have made an interesting Doctor Who story. The idea that um, Romana possessed um, by by an alien intelligence would be a really formidable foe for the Doctor. Um, he's, he's kind of comes and goes within a chapter. You could get a dozen books out of this one book, and each one of those dozen books would be very very good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, I think we both kind of came over the same feeling that it was. Uh, very very entertaining um but but not not a good doctor who book maybe it was a great experiment yeah. i'm just not sure that i want to read another one just like it yeah um the good thing is uh, there's so many doctor who books kind of coming out this year um it's not like there's, there's been years where we've only had a, a couple of books isn't there or two or three um this year we've 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 had this we've had doctor the cricket man we've got the missy chronicles the day she shaved the day, sorry, the day she saved the doctor, not the day she shaved the doctor. That would be a weird. That would be a very different kind of book there. Yeah. <laughs> um, then we've got all the target novelizations coming up as well, which I cannot wait for. Oh, I, yeah, coming out in less than a month, early April. Yeah, um, and there, it seems like there's there's all six. I think are coming out on the same day. Is it five or six? We've if got, I read Amazon correctly, five of them coming out at the same time. Yeah, so there's Rose, uh, The Christmas Invasion, The Day of the Doctor, Twice Upon a Time, and they're re-releasing James Gotti's City of Death. In uh, a bridged form, so it fits as a Target paperback. Yeah, which I imagine it's only a matter of time before we also get the Pirate Planet in the same format as well, because it's, uh, uh, it is a novelization of a televised story. So Yes, but we're getting Russell T. Davies, we're getting Stephen Moffat, Jenny Colgan, Paul Cornell. This is going to be the golden age of Doctor Who literature right here in 2018. Definitely. Uh, and the plan is to do a podcast on each one of them. Uh, so you're going to join me to look at Paul Cornell's Twice Upon a Time? One of my favorite writers and definitely one of uh, my new favorite TV stories. I'm yeah. looking forward to that very much. Yeah, me too. I, Paul Cornell, I often say it's on the podcast. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite writers. Absolutely fantastic, and um, is one of the people that can be heard on Who Against Guns. I'm not sure which episode, uh, but I know he's uh, he's contributed a commentary as well. So uh, that will be very 
very interesting to listen to. He's um, uh, I know he's been on the Writers Room podcast a couple of times. Um, very kind of interesting talking about other writers' work and, and especially classic Doctor Who. So, uh, and obviously a friend of Terence Dix. So uh, it'll be uh, be interesting the insights that he can bring to that. I wish I was a friend of Terence Dix. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, I, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen him at a convention or anything. I, I saw him at a convention, Dimensions, about 2012 or 13. Um, just great on stage as well. Great kind of uh, storyteller. And obviously he's a great storyteller in the sense that he's written tons of Doctor Who books that are great. But um, loads of anecdotes and those he's polished them over the years. I met him at the second L.I. Who, the Long Island Doctor Who convention, before those were discontinued. But I met him there, and I got him to sign a handful of my novelizations. I, One uh, of the highlights of my life, getting to meet him and talk to him face-to-face. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that when I met him as well. I um, It hadn't occurred to me to that point, but I, I, probably the author whose books I've read the most of, just from, from being a kid and just reading all the Target books. I told him that I've read more Terence Dix books than books by Charles Dickens, uh, Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters combined. And I think he was kind of horrified by that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess he's kind of um, like a kind of a JK Rowling, really, for that generation of getting kids to read. Um, and and just the uh, the kind of the phrases that he's added to the Doctor Who lexicon as well. You've got, uh, you know, the kind of the wheezing, groaning sound and the... The sprightly yellow roadster, the the fifth doctor with his open pleasant face, the the kind yeah, the, of so, the, the vaguely bohemian scarf. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and the third doctor's young slash old face and mane of white hair. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining me, Jason. It was a pleasure um, discussing this book with you. Always a pleasure. Look forward to coming back to discussing twice upon a time. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much for listening at home. Uh, So we can find you on Twitter, Jason, as... Doctor Who Novels, D-R-W-H-O Novels. Um, And your blog, um, where you're covering the the Target books. Um, That's been on pause for a while, but I look forward to resuming at some point in the future. Excellent. I'll look forward to that. That's Doctor Who Novels at WordPress.com. I will put a link to the show notes in that one as well. Thank you very much, and we'll speak to you again soon. Goodbye. Always a pleasure.